Hello and welcome to Intrepid Times, your home for narrative travel writing with heart. I'm Nathan Thomas, and alongside my co-host Jennifer Roberts, we take you behind the scenes of some of our most popular travel stories, get you to meet travel writers, and help you discover how you can share your own travel stories with the world. And welcome back. I'm Jennifer Roberts, co-editor of Intrepid Times. Uh, I have to say, I always get excited for my conversations with travel writers, um, but I've been, you know, pretty giddy <laughs> ahead of today's conversation uh, because I'm here with Kapka Kasavova, uh, whose writing has managed to entirely shift how I think about what we can achieve with travel writing. As a quick intro, Kapka is an award-winning author who grew up in Bulgaria, studied in New Zealand, and currently lives in Scotland. She's published both narrative prose and poetry, and her most recent books are Border to the Lake and Elixir, which are part of what will soon be a quartet set in the Southern Balkans and exploring the relationship between people and their environment. In our conversation today, we'll focus mostly on Elixir, as that's the most recently published book. Um, but I'm also really looking forward to touching on Border into the Lake as well. Um, so let's get into it. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Kafka. It's a pleasure, Jennifer. All right. So all three of these books, they kind of take it in turns to uh, kind of break your heart open a little bit. You know, you incorporate personal stories um, from everywhere you travel to. Most of these are like little villages that you end up going to. And a lot of these stories revolve around tragedy and loss. But, you know, as a reader, I kind of just walked willingly into each of these stories because they were so compelling. Um, and beyond the tragedy, there was this sense of hope in them. And I don't mean hope in that, you know, all these stories had a happy ending, so everything has a happy ending, um, because that's not the case. Uh, many of these stories are not happy and, you know, may never be happy. But there's something in the fact that these people that you speak with, despite all of the tragedy in their lives, still find it in themselves to speak with you and share their experience and help you understand why they are the way they are and why the place they live in is the way that it is. And there's, you know, something about that particular ability to share in the human experience, despite everything else, that is where I found hope. And so, you know, you definitely take the time to, to break the reader's heart, you know, again and again. Uh, but once you do that, you make sure to fill it with the ideas that they need in order to heal after that. And, you know, Elixir, I feel like this happens, you know, maybe more than in the other two. I'm not sure. I might have to reflect on that a little bit more. But, you know, you have throughout that whole book, there's just this intense openness to whatever you find. And I wonder if that is actually where healing starts. That is so articulate, you know, the way you've expressed that, that this and so interesting for me to hear that, um, you know, that that being your experience as a reader. Um, and it actually just listening to you, um, it took me back to the experience of border 
which which is now well it started 10 years ago this is 10 years of my life writing these these four books um and and, and it began with border 10 years ago and i actually felt during the you know the, the that border journey which was also a, a a kind of um a journey through through the mountains of you know of, of it was a mountain journey as much as a a border zone journey. It was during that experience, you know, that year, um, that I I felt that something in in my own heart shifted. I experienced what what can be called a kind of a, a massive heart opening. I suppose heartbreak um, is how I first experienced it, and I was not prepared emotionally for what I was given by the people of the border which was the greatest gift a, a writer can hope for, you know, an experiential writer um, of any kind can, can hope for, which is the gift of their, their life stories. And, and, I, and, I, and I accepted that gift time after time. I was not prepared for it, though. Um, and so it really hit me time after time. And, and processing all, all of that and, and learning so much about the history of the border people and um, also um, about mountain culture, mountain living, changed me it changed me radically and it made the following journeys and the following books possible it gave me the courage and the maturity to kind of approach you know the the, the increasingly complex subjects and regions and, and and human experiences that kind of constellate into the lake and elixir respectively um but border was kind of that it, it was my <laughs> it, it was the greatest sort of apprenticeship I've had um really I, I didn't know what I was stumbling into I, I sort of knew and I was prepared to pay any price for it as I often am when I embark on a journey <laughs> I'll pay any price to 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 dig up the gold of truth you know the gold of the story and and because you mentioned healing, um, you know, obviously healing is a big theme in Elixir, as, as the word itself suggests. <laughs> the word incidentally comes from the Arabic al-Iqsir, uh, the miraculous substance. So healing kind of, I, I, I think for me, healing was possible after border, which was a very wounding series of sort of encounters uh, in a very wounded region. Healing was possible through the very act actually of excavating the collective shadow um, you know in psychology this is called shadow work when you are working with the shadow aspects of the psyche whether it's your own you know in individual um, healing or therapy whether it's through ancestral you know um, delving into your ancestral history which is what I do into the lake whether it's a more collective kind of exorcism of a collective shadow and with border it was very much that and the regions themselves you know these mountainous regions these hidden corners of of of, of the land and of the collective psyche <laughs> um it really it really felt like an act of exorcism for which i was not prepared but i did it anyway and i think for some things you cannot prepare and that is the thrill of experiential writing and indeed, experiential living. <laughs> and for me, writing and living are kind of one thing. You know, it's an organic, it's a symbiotic relationship. I couldn't write these books without living them. And I couldn't live without the purpose 
of of each each journey you know without the sense of mission so healing yes I, I i think healing is you know a vast area of sort of human experience and i couldn't have written elixir i couldn't have experienced the encounters of elixir if i hadn't already been through border and to the lake it's not something i would i would see the same way if i wasn't speaking to you about this but now that you're saying that border does feel like a very different book than to the lake and elixir and it's been it's been a bit of a longer time since I read Border. Um, I read Border uh, earlier this year, and then I read To the Lake and Elixir uh, just recently. But there is a very different set of emotions that come up in Border. There is this tension of you know you feel like you need to be there, but you also constantly kind of feel this need to to get away to escape, but you resist that. You constantly resist it. Um, there's one moment where uh, you're on that mountain with uh, his name is Zico, I think, and you you're finally overcome by this fear, this kind of paranoia that creeps up on you kind of, you know, it feels unexpected, but maybe it's been kind of building up and you end up fleeing the mountain. Uh, I won't ruin the rest for readers, but there is that tension that doesn't exist, I feel, into the lake and elixir, you know, into the lake and elixir, you're very much planted uh very grounded in in those books in a way you weren't in border I think um and it's really interesting that you mentioned you know that the shadow work um because in into the lake one of the images that comes up again and again is the image of light uh, you mention it you mention it a lot <laughs> uh light there's a moment where you say you know it's just it's light it's just light uh and out of context that sounds very strange but in the moment the reader is like of course, it's, it's just light. <laughs> uh, that's the answer here. You know, if we're talking about shadow work where everything is working in shadow, this is darkness that we need to heal. You know, what is the answer? And the answer is, is light. In a place like Lake Ohrid, that that is unavoidable. You know, it's not it's not a great insight of mine. It, 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 it's just it, it's just an, uh, an evidence of truth that comes from the land itself. And you know, a lot of a lot of what I end up doing in these books seems to just emanate from the land itself, just like this extraordinary light, a very particular ethereal light emanates from Lake Ohrid, which is um, Europe's oldest lake. And it has a particular geology which makes the water look transparent and, and the light is like nowhere else I've seen. It is a genuinely spiritual place. It is it is a place of of spirit. And yes, um, the 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 light of the lake is everywhere. It's um, I understood, for example, why for a thousand years uninterrupted, until Tito uh, Tito arrived and Yugoslav communism sort of interrupted this. For a thousand years, monks and nuns lived in these um, um, rock churches, rock hermitages, um, all around the rim. Of, of Lake Ohrid and its sister lake, 600 meters above, you know, they're divided by a mountain um, on the surface of the earth, but actually they're connected by underground rivers, which is really um, a very symbolic image of, you know, of darkness and light because Lake Prespa is, um, is a much darker place. Uh, the mountains there are darker, it's higher. Uh, the water has a different composition. But Prespa, through this mount, this karstic mountain, actually feeds into Lake Ohrid, and the mountain acts like a giant sort of sponge 
it's just an extraordinary ecosystem. It's a perfect ecosystem. <laughs> um, and, and it's a little bit like the human psyche, um, it seems to me. There's a lot in your books and all three of the books, um, actually, about, you know, this idea of nature being reflected in the human psyche and vice versa. Um, and I think that I see, you know, it was so fascinating to be able to read these uh, in order. Um, you know, I think it would have been a very different experience if I had read, for example, Elixir and then Border and then To the Lake. Because, you know, you see this progression of, yes, there's there's this kind of darkness that comes from, from border that sneaks into kind of the beginning of To the Lake, and then we kind of transition into light, and you carry that into Elixir. Um, and throughout all of this, you know, I feel like when you're seeing these nuances and these dichotomies in nature, you become more comfortable with these nuances and dichotomies that exist in the human psyche. I believe it's in Elixir. Uh, I could be wrong, but you you talk a little bit about I think you meet somebody, you're talking to somebody, they say, you know, there's good and evil in all of us. And that just becomes just kind of an easy truth to accept at that point, because you've seen so many of these dichotomies at play and two things can be true at the same time. And how do we come to terms with that on our journeys? Indeed, I think that's um, that that's the kind of open question that is the kind of thread that runs through um particularly to the lake and 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 and, and the elixir and in elixir i really experienced a kind of um, very tangible change in perception it was partly the the geography partly this extraordinary place where i found myself well i was drawn to it and i instinctively knew i had to follow some kind of hidden trail that's i, I suppose that's the way i i work you know i follow an instinct and um, and i have very strong instincts for place but in Elixir, you know, it was partly the terrain, which really had these sort of great, great highs and lows, you know, the peaks and valleys, which again, in psychology is, uh, actually, I think that's, that's an expression that comes from Keats, the, the English poet, you know, peaks and valleys, the veil of, the, of, of soul making, you know, partly that, and it was partly the quality of the time, because a, a lot of that was during the, the early time of the pandemic. And there was a very concentrated quality to everything. And I did experience, you know, in some of these, some of these sort of um, alpine scenes that I describe in, in, in the elixir, a change in perception. It, it was completely spontaneous. And it, I think it was partly me being ready for that and partly being in the right place where quite literally some of these mountains, like Rila and Pirin in particular, you know, they're two of the great mountains of Southern Europe, are crystal mountains with different with a different energy, just a very pure energy, and 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 so this shifting perception, I think was what was what I had been building up to, um, after to the late, and you know the eco the early eco psychologists of the sixties and and seventies who are also, the first to warn us about what what would come if we don't change our ways you know, as an industrial consumerist civilization. So the early eco-psychologists were right when they said the mind is nature and nature, nature is the mind. Um, and they, they coined this, this, this word eco-psychology. I didn't know this, but I experienced it. I experienced it through these places and people. And for me, it's really important to have guides. You know, it's not enough for me to, I can't simply go and hike in a place or you know, read up on its history. That's for me, the key is a, a kind of living point of contact 
with someone that that would feel to me like a guide, someone who already has a deep connection with the place. It doesn't have to be a positive connection, but a deep connection that by definition means a complex one. You know, so my whole idea of what an ecosystem means was kind of expanded during the elixir journey. You know, I understood that an ecosystem is, is something where the, hu the human being is a component. You know, we are a small but important component <laughs> of these ecosystems on, on earth. And what goes into an ecosystem culturally, biologically, emotionally, and how storytelling is a vital part of a healthy ecosystem. And a lot of the people in Elixir are part of that ecosystem. They are Pomaks, part of the Muslim minority of, um, you know, Bulgaria. And they are, you know, some of the kind of, some of the keepers, the last keepers of mountain knowledge, plants, healing methods, um, stories, memories, you know, this whole sort of treasure chest that is this region, like many, many other regions on earth. <laughs> These treasure chests where, you know, our collective memories are stored in like some kind of library of the earth. And I am in love with this process of tuning in, you know, to a particular, you know, regional library of the earth with all its sort of inhabitants, human and, and non-human living and dead and listening and these themes and melodies and, and patterns begin to emerge. And they're archetypal. You know, we live in an archetypal world where everything has its correspondence, a world of resonances. And I think this is what, what I explore in Elixir. There's a lot there, but yes um, to all of it. Uh, the storytelling, I mean, the, the exploration of nature and Elixir by itself is fascinating, right? But placing it inside the context of people's stories and how they've interacted with this nature and how nature has influenced subtly or you know in very obvious ways uh the course of history and the course of their lives that's what makes this compelling and you know this the shift in perspective that happens there's also something very strange happening with time right in elixir there's a couple moments where where you're talking to people, I, I'm thinking specifically about um, when you're speaking with with Emin, kind of toward the end of the book, and you're you're exploring the meadow with him, and uh, you're looking at the horses, and you know you jump into the future for just a moment because you know in two weeks this foal will be dragged away by wolves. Um, you offer the reader just a very short glimpse of of a future thing that's going to happen, and this happens a couple times throughout the book whenever you're talking to people and telling their stories and you're interacting with somebody and something's going to happen in the future and you offer a short glimpse of that. Um, it's a writing technique, but you do it in a way that it reflects this kind of slippery quality of time that I think you find most in Elixir, uh, if I'm reading the books correctly. It's, it begins to happen a little bit into the lake. But in Elixir, there's, there's this idea that time is not as linear as we would like to think it is. <laughs> um, there's this really interesting moment, right, where you're eating a, a peach uh, and you're walking and you're about to throw, throw the seed on the floor and you look and there's already a seed there and you have this kind of very strange sensation that you've already been there. You've already done this thing. And this kind of slippery quality of time, this shift in the perspective of time, 
it starts a little bit in border because there is this feeling that, you know, you're in the present, but you don't, you don't dwell too much on you know, this nostalgia for the past. You definitely present the past, but the present and the past and the future all feel very equal. And then that gets kind of pulled into its kind of ultimate form. Maybe, I mean, maybe in your, your final book of the quartet, it'll, it'll go even further, but in Elixir, it feels like time becomes something that is helping instead of acting against us. <laughs> I love this idea of time helping because often we sort of battle with time, don't we? In, in our right. linear, linear, three-dimensional sort of fashion, which is which is very unimaginative, isn't it? Um, but but time helping is well. I think that's a very quantum thing, and and indeed, you know, the the episode with the peach and 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 a few other moments on the elixir journey, um, certainly with the, with the means horses at the end, but also some, you know, some flashes of, of the collective past among the tobacco, the abandoned tobacco fields in, in, in the chapter called Us in the Ancient Darkness, where, where I, uh, I go with my guide, Metco, the local historian, and explore the tobacco fields of his childhood, which were once in an earlier, an earlier stage, a gigantic native forest of oak and beech, you know, millennial forest. And now it's just abandoned. It's just left to itself. So this simultaneity of past, present and future is something that I simply experience in these places. It's the nature of the place itself. And it's also the nature of the human experience there. And it's so compressed and at the same time so spacious. And that I would describe as a quantum thing. And the episode with the peach that you described, that's part of, of, a, of an experience that, that's fundamentally exploring water. It's called in the ladies' pool, that, um, that chapter. And it's, it's where I really delve into, I'm in this place which is full of hot springs, hot mineral springs, and everything is water. Water is in the air. Um, and I really am fascinated by, of all the four main elements on Earth, water, fire, earth, and air, and that's how elixir is structured through these mm -hmm. elements. I'm most fascinated by water um, because it seems to me that water is a carrier of something, of information. It, it doesn't seem to me, it's, you know, it's a scientific fact. And we, we all feel different by, you know, by a large body of water, especially something to do with clean water, springs. You know, there have always been holy springs in human history. And in that place, I experienced timelessness and absolute synchronicity. In other words, a kind of quantum experience where quite literally, when you are surrounded by water, time dissolves and form dissolves and we return to a formless state, which is something that all the mystical traditions are very familiar with. And I don't work in a mystical tradition, but... I am working with the elements on this journey and, you know, each element, you know, water, earth, fire and air have their kind of mythopoetic reality, uh, you know, they have their guardian spirits. So the, for, for water, it's the undines, for air, it's the sylphs, um, uh, for, for fire, it's the salamander. Uh, for earth it's the gnome and this also goes takes us back to alchemy um, where elixir comes from elixir is an alchemical notion and alchemy is a very ancient thing that came to prominence in europe in the middle ages 
and gave birth to science, in fact. Again, chemistry can't comes, even the word comes from, from alchemy, an Arab word, and actually an ancient Greek word that was adap adapted during the Islamic Enlightenment in the Middle East. And it's a fascinating tradition, the alchemical tradition, and those alchemists uh, who are mostly Sufists of this mystical Islamic tradition brought alchemy, uh, philosophy, and all the arts and sciences back into Europe. They were, the, in fact, the first Neoplatonists who revived uh, the Platonic ideals, you know, the ancient um, Greek ideals and philosophies, and brought it back to Europe in the Middle Ages. And so, yeah, alchemy sort of runs like a, a sort of gossamer thread through my experiences and my my encounters with people. Um, and it's a way of kind of these alchemical notions. They're very real, you know, working with the elements, also working with what's broadly called magic or, you know, ritualized, ritualized gestures that are in essence um, nature worship you know they go back to nature worship so there's a lot of that in in the book because I I simply came across a lot of that still being practiced you know sacred stones sacred springs miraculous miracles you know quoting quoting a particular woman and young youths and magical miracles and unbelievable beliefs it emanates from the land itself and what I found exhilarating about this journey and these encounters is that the thread hasn't been severed there, not completely severed, it's been damaged, but not completely severed um, between the human imagination and everyday life and nature in all its, you know, miraculous <laughs> miracles, um, starting with the four elements. So it's both magical and completely real. Yeah, I think you mentioned at one point, uh, this is a place where, you know, people have permission to experience miracles. Um, and I love that you mentioned water um, as your favorite element. I was thinking a lot about water when I was just kind of thinking about about this interview, because there's, I'm going to throw us back into to the lake for a moment with this question, but there's a moment uh, where you're speaking about your your grandmother and you talk about how, you know, she ate too much, she smoked too much, she felt deeply and, uh, quote, what she found pleasurable was driven to a point of exquisite pain. Neutrality was not an option, uh, end quote. And this idea of neutrality stuck with me because, you know, in border, neutral spaces uh, aren't really allowed, <laughs> right? That's kind of the nature of a border. Uh, there are no neutral spaces. It's one or the other. Um, into the lake, there's a moment where you're on a boat and you want to cross into uh, Greece, I believe, and your guide won't take you because there's there's a water border. <laughs> there's nothing marking the water border, uh, but he knows that it's there and he won't cross it. There's nothing there's nothing that's neutral. And yet, you know, the pH of pure water is seven. It's neutral. And there's something there's something in that that nothing else seems to be, even plants, you know, in elixir, uh, you know, plants when they're, when they're in the ground, they look fairly harmless, but they're, they're not neutral either. They'll either hurt or help you depending on how much you take, what part of the plant, but water, water can be neutral. And is that part of the magic that water offers? Yeah, absolutely. Um, some wonderful, wonderful spells I learned, um, <laughs> 
to be to be performed well to be recited um near water it's got to be clean water of course running water and a, a great spell is like a poem just like a great poem is 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 like a spell and that's why i i quote a few of the spells that um that these women gave me um a great gift because sometimes spells are secrets but they were happy to share them and water is is a cleansing agent uh, of course as as well as a a memory carrier and it's a feminine element and and as you were talking about the you know the about neutrality i w- i was really thinking back to this idea you you brought up about linear time and how how really you know in border this idea of us and them um of a binary world you know is exposed as fundamentally false but by the stories of the people themselves, the stories of the mountains, even you, you cannot separate a mountain into two. <laughs> you know, it's it, it it's an impossibility of the Solomon, the biblical Solomon, King Solomon variety, and and so this this linear binary industrial model of thinking, which has bankrupted our world, and we are witnessing that and participating in that as we speak. That model, which I would describe as the patriarchal model, is coming to an end. And I think collectively we are ready to discover <laughs> actually the, you know, the, the complex nature, the ecosystemic nature of our reality, perhaps even the quantum nature of our reality, which is anything but linear or binary or us and them. <laughs> it's labyrinthine. It's... um you know, perhaps the symbol that most represents it is the spiral or the mandala. I think that is the nature of our reality. And that's why I'm so interested in archetypes and patterns, because they emerge from from, from nature itself and, and water. You know, if you scientifically look at sort of the patterns of water, um, water, you know, the crystals in frozen water. I was hearing about some recent experiments where water was kind of recorded the composition of water was recorded the same kind of water was recorded in different environments different emotional environments different mental environments and its composition looks different even though it's the same water to start with isn't that fascinating it's fascinating oh my gosh it's fascinating i can't say it surprises me after uh, reading your books there is there's something and you do it so well in all of these books, but especially Elixir, where there is an intelligence in nature. And it just, it becomes just like an easy truth to accept after reading the book. And I think one of my favorite things about the way you write is that, you know, you have this very poetic quality to the way you write. I mean, you've written poetry. Um, so it doesn't surprise me. But, you know, there's there's this flow, there's there's this music to the way that you describe things. And then kind of out of nowhere a lot, you'll just kind of drop in these these big truths that feel just very easy to accept. You know, for example, uh, I had written down a couple because I just I found this endlessly fascinating. This one was was probably my favorite. Um, it's out of context, so it might sound a little strange to listeners. Um, but without meeting him, I wouldn't have allowed for the possibility that the Black Madonna might be a conduit, if not for a miracle, then for personal transformation, which is the same. Uh, miracle and personal transformation, like, it's the same, of course. <laughs> you know, these things that would feel such, such like big truths, they become easy truths uh, in the way that you write. And 
you're not you're not forcing them. You're not saying this is something you have to believe. These are just truths that you discover. I mean, that's the whole. This is the whole quartet, right? Is these are truths that you uncover. This is the process that you wanted to engage in, and the reader can take or leave what they need. But though those moments, they feel so profound and yet so easy. Um, and I think that that's not something a lot of writers can do. Well, I think the word discover is is key or uncover, and it, it is a process, and and it's an endless process because you cannot stop discovering when you're in a place like that, where you're in a place that that calls you, <laughs> and and it, it, you know these things emerge from the place itself and from from its from its inhabitants and from my interaction with all of that. So, for example, um, in Elixir, there is a man called Alish who is a blind osteopath um, and he runs a private practice out of his one and only room. He only has one room, that's all he has. He lives in it and he receives patients in it in this small village on a railway, on a railway line, um, sort of um, squeezed between two mountains. And he he's a healer, he's not just an osteopath, he's a healer, his personal quality makes him a healer. and interacting with him you know hanging out with him I experience what it's like to be with someone completely selfless it's a very rare thing completely selfless people are very rare and so when when I asked you know when I asked him what's the most important thing for you uh, I already knew that he would say love because the way he lives his life is through love you know love for what he does love for people love for his river he's actually at the source of 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 the mess the river which which is the kind of backbone of of, of my book and um there are two rivers that are the sources black mester and white mester it's again very alchemical very poetic <laughs> but that's what the folk imagination has come up with and he lives near black mester and he loves that river like a person he says and being around him was an extraordinary thing and these are the insights that that I experience because these are the experiences. These are the people. These are the places. And I suppose I do look for them. I look for nothing less than pure gold. <laughs> and that's what you find. That's what you find every time. Uh, and, you know, you, you mentioned love. And I thought that it was so interesting because love comes up a couple of times in Elixir. There's even one person who says, you know, I think love is the only elixir I need. Um, but then at the end, there's there's this interaction with Emin, um, who is kind of starved for love, I believe he says. Um, and so you offer glimpses of what love can do and what what it feels like to actually feel love for nature and for the people around you and for, for your work. And then you offer a glimpse at what happens when when love is absent, you know, when when someone is starved for love, what does that look like? And what can we do with that kind of life? Uh, and so there is, again, this kind of dichotomy, but that's not really a dichotomy because there's all these in-betweens and gray areas and extensions and love, you know, like light into the lake. I feel like love was kind of the, the big word I kept coming back to in Elixir. And I don't know if that was on purpose or if that was uh, just a personal reading of the book. Um, but is it something that you feel like you kept coming back to in the book? Well, um, it, it, it was unavoidable. I was in love with... Um... I was in love with the valley at the end of time, which I, I, which is, you know, what I called the Mesta Valley. And because I fell in love with it on first contact, having never been there before, I spent two years of my life exploring 
what that meant <laughs> and exploring it there and you know with these places and these tributaries of the river and on the map things are so simple on the map so again linear you know so I'm a great lover of maps but as soon as you step off the map and you know on on that meadow with the St John's Wort uh, which in the rain on those alpine meadows is like liquid gold and you understand that nothing is solid that everything is plasma constantly morphing plasma and everything is a constant state of becoming you you fall in love with with you know with 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 the experience of just being alive again and again and i'm interested in the mist all the mystical traditions and there's a few mentions of course in this because of the al alchemy of of, of the Sufists of, of, of Rumi, that there's also a, a chapter on Sufism into the lake. And Rumi, being the most, uh, the, the best known Sufi poet, spoke of the beloved with a capital B. And he was forever on the road because he was a wandering dervish, like many of them were, and many mystics are wanderers, you know, in the Zen tradition as well. They are wanderers who, who only have a, a little bag and a, and, a, and a stick, you know, like wizards and witches. <laughs> <laughs> they wander looking for magical plants and miraculous encounters and, and truth and the beloved. And so this search for the beloved is, is exactly that. It's, it's not a search for a person, you know. It can be, but it necessarily transcends that. It, it's a transpersonal Thing. it's it's the search for the divine really for, for communion and and for union and i suppose water is the element where you you experience that kind of dissolution of of the ego of the self and and you meet the beloved which is in a way just the mirror image of of yourself you know in a in, in a completely different non non-egoic way so so this is what alchemy is it, it, it's a process of constant becoming and transformation and reaching you know reaching and i think perhaps the best image for me the truest image for me in my own experience is that of the pilgrim you know you have a whole chapter uh devoted to, to i think it's called pilgrim actually pilgrims yeah, there's there's actually quite a few pilgrimages, um, and I mean it ties in beautifully with this this idea of pursuing a transformation, this idea of pursuing alchemy, right? Because I think every journey includes a little bit of that necessarily. Um, we're talking about the beloved, and you know, I think in every journey we set out on, whether we know it or not, uh, we're searching for a little bit of that. I'm yeah. reminded as you as you said this of um of a slightly darker sort of. Uh, version of this that I came across in um, Paul Bowles, the uh, the American writer. I was a big fan of of his as a student, so I I read everything. But you know, he had this obsession with places, usually dark places where people come to sticky ends because they're out of their depth. You know, all his characters are sort of just they are out of their element, and 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 he throughout his life reenacted that um, himself. And he said, I think in his memoir, without stopping. <laughs> Uh, like any romant like any old romantic, I have often dreamt of a place that would bring me wisdom and ecstasy, perhaps even death. <laughs> this is this is the a darker way of expressing it. Um, but it has always chimed with me. And I think Borda nearly brought me that. 
but things have evolved since then. There's a very clear evolution. Um, and I think that's what makes reading these these books as a series so fascinating is that there is a very clear evolution of not only the ideas and of the place, but but of you as the writer. Um, you know, travel writing is is necessarily about more than the writer, but it also has to be a little bit about the writer. Um, and if they if they have something that's that's at stake that the reader can connect to, uh, there's always there's always an extra reason to to stay connected to to the writing. And I think that's that's what kept me so so glued to all three of these books was that every single story you told, there was something at stake. But for you, there was always something at stake as well. Um, and there was there was this idea that you you needed this personal journey of healing, but also nature needed this. The people that you met needed this. There was something necessary about all of it. And that that echoes through all all three of the books. I feel, um, and it's it's beautiful. It's really just beautiful. I think you're you're right that um, well, at least for me, experiential writing is very different uh, from other forms of writing. You know, sort of um, armchair writing, uh, academic or historic writing, in that something must be at stake for the writer. Which is not to say that it's it's all about you, not at all. But you have to honestly own your journey. You have to own your pilgrimage, and you have to own your your wounds and your hopes, and and not merely project all of that onto your environment. And I think that's the difference between transformational journeys and perhaps books. But for me, at least as a reader, I'm always looking for for a trans transformative experience when I pick up a book and between simply moving through a landscape full of yourself. And, 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 you know, in, in Zen, there is a saying, you must first empty your cup, you know, before it can be refilled. Don't arrive, you know, the, the master says to the, to the student, don't arrive with your cup already full. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly think that's perfect advice for, for any, anybody wanting to write in general, but for travel writing, maybe in particular, um, because if you write with an empty cup, there's not a whole lot of space for learning and learning, I think is absolutely necessary in any kind of travel writing. Um, and I think, yeah, for anyone listening, uh, take that advice and run with it, please. <laughs> um, and I actually think that's great advice to to end on Kafka. Um, before we, we sign off, if anybody wants to pick up Elixir, where can they do so? Ah, Elixir is um, at the moment published in English by two publishers. In Britain, it's published by Cape and in the United States by Grey Wolf. Um, and it's also got an Italian edition and a French one coming up and various others next year. It's an audio book as well. Ah, perfect. So yeah, there's there are different formats of different languages, <laughs> something for everyone. Um, highly recommend. Uh, I recommend all three, Border uh, to the Lake, Elixir, um, and the next and final book in the quartet, uh, if it remains a quartet, <laughs> is uh, is going to be Anima. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And that will be coming out next year. So we can all, all keep an eye out for that. Uh, I will definitely be, be looking forward to it. Thank you so much, Kapi. It was really wonderful to speak with you. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks for listening, everyone. And don't forget to check out our new travel stories published weekly on intrepidtimes.com. See you next time.